Today's show is sponsored in part by InterOptic. Fortune 500 companies choose InterOptic optical transceivers to minimize the risk of network failures and maximize IT savings. InterOptic's transceivers are 100% guaranteed compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and others, and available at a fraction of the cost. Work with the optics experts at InterOptic. Go to interoptic.com packet pushers to find out more. or CML or more modern variants like Container Lab, but you still ran that virtualized lab at home on your laptop for smaller labs or on an eBay server with a lot of cores and RAM for bigger labs. And at confession time from uh, from me, my home lab, that's, that's pretty much that model. I have a rack in the basement with an old server running ESXi, 16 cores, 128 gig of RAM, plus I have a mishmash of old network hardware routers and switches just in case I need to do hardware dependent stuff. But but if I'm honest, I, I mostly don't need real routers and switches. So that begs the question, why not cloud? And the answer for me has been a mix of uh, I'm scared it's going to cost me more than I planned on spending and hardware in a rack makes me happy and in general laziness, because if I have a solution that works, finding a motivation lever long enough to disrupt my inertia is hard. Our guest today is Tom Costello. Tom has found a long enough motivation lever to host his home lab in the cloud. And we're going to talk about it because he's gone in deep on cloud-hosted networking labs. Lots of automation to make it all go. Tom, welcome to Heavy Networking and introduce yourself to the people. Tell the nice folks who you are and what you do. Thanks for having me, Ethan. I'm a senior network engineer at a large research and education campus here in the Chicagoland area. And I mostly do traditional network engineering stuff, you know, core switches, firewalls, border routers. But from time to time, I'll do more network automation projects. Uh, those usually involve the campus building switches, uh, sometimes Cisco ICE administration with some Ansible playbooks. And I've been there doing that sort of thing for about two and a half years now. And it was actually the small gap I had between starting my current job and resigning from the old one that kind of got me into this uh, cloud home web rabbit hole. And uh, I'm very happy to be talking about that today. Oh, and uh, I should also mention that I'm just here chatting about my own personal cloud home web on my own behalf. Uh, I'll mention stuff about work, but all the views and opinions here are strictly those of my own, not necessarily those of any organization that I'm currently affiliated with or have been in the past. You're right. You remind me of the people with the uh, the Twitter profiles that say I, I tweet on my own behalf and not uh, my thoughts are not my employers, you know, and that kind of thing. Fair enough. We got you, Tom. We know where you're coming from. So, OK, you hinted at it there. You know, why home labbing? It sounded like in between jobs where you like uh, wanting to skill up to uh, to to move into home labbing. Was that the driver for you? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So uh, I started off doing home lambing stuff a uh, long, long ago, mostly for certification purposes. So I had pretty much the whole CCNP T-shoot topology for the mid 2010s built out in my spare bedroom, you know, kind of like your setup, you know, switches off eBay, some GNS3 Dynamips routers back then. And that was all great, but I had some former coworkers that were doing these uh, amazing things with EVNG at home, you know, doing CCIE level type labs. And I always wanted to check that out, but never really seemed to have the spare cycles to, to do that. And, and all of that changed in June, 2020. So uh, I was kind of winding things down at my previous job and I was living in a, a downtown Chicago condo. So I didn't really have space to like do a full blown, you know, running a server or anything like that at home. But um, I was getting very, very bored. This was kind of the dead of the pandemic in, in Chicago. Even the lakefront bike path was closed due to COVID. And <laughs> oh, even though boy. it's normally awesome to get a couple weeks, you know, but between gigs like that, but I was just bored out of my mind. I mean, there was really not a whole lot to do. Things were so closed. Social activities really weren't happening. Just that was the state of the pandemic we were in. And so uh, it just so happened right around that time was when Cisco Live 2020, when kind of, you know, got everything remote at the last minute was happening. Yeah, yeah so, that, right. Uh, that was the one where they had uh, gone through the normal buildup, but then decided at the last minute, not nah, we're going to we're going to go full remote. Right. That There was no live Cisco tw Live 2020. Exactly. And, yeah, and so yeah, yeah. it was right, right around that time where uh, I think I sent my uh, my current boss a quick email of like, 
hey, you know, Cisco Live's coming up. Uh, we talked about so many different technologies <laughs> throughout the interview process. Uh, I know I'm going into a multi-vendor shop. Like, is there any particular technologies, any things that, you know, I might want to sit in on for, for Cisco Live US 2020? And, and he sent me this super nice email back saying, like, you know, just come back well-rested. Like, by all means, don't feel obligated to trying to learn new things or like, you know, get burnt out trying to attend every single Cisco live talk or anything crazy like that. But, you know, if you are looking to do something, you know, more technology oriented, uh, getting familiar with Cisco ICE would be a, a good idea. And uh, that was, uh, <laughs> to be honest, uh, not the the most exciting thing for me to hear because at the time I was pretty behind uh, where the world had progressed to in the AAA server and network access control world. And I had done things with, with Cisco ACS and the yeah. kind of the pre-ICE uh, clean access NAC. Uh, gosh, that was like, you know, early 2010s. But I knew I had some catching up to do and uh, having sat in on some of those Cisco live talks uh, on ICE. Uh, that kind of motivated me to start kicking the tires with it at home. There were some really good Cisco ICE home leg blogs out there. I wanted to, you know, kick the tires that way. But uh, I very quickly ran into some issues because my desktop wasn't the newest and I just mm -hmm. couldn't get this big beefy Cisco ICE VM <laughs> to, to start up on it. I just didn't have enough RAM and it, it, it's any up... consolation. That product has always been a monster when back in the ACS days, oh, yes. I mean, this goes back, I don't know, it might be 20 years, but running Cisco ACS was this big commitment of hardware back when it was running on some kind of a sun workstation. It was like, wow, we got to <laughs> spend how much on a box to run this thing. What's it do? It's, it doesn't, it's still to this day. It's oh, kind of yes. blows my mind on how, how intense it is. So, so, okay. So you needed more horsepower to run ice for your lab than you had at home. And so, but you didn't, you didn't just want to buy something that could, uh, you know, again, the eBay server solution didn't appeal to mm -hmm. you. Yeah, so I really like the idea of having this be the motivation, you know, go out and, you know, buy some, you know, fancy new toy to do that type of thing at home. But uh, again, I was in a condo, we have lofted ceilings. So having a server where that's, you know, spinning up with, with you know, the fans and all of that, and, you know, my yeah, wife on Zoom yeah. calls for work, it, it just wasn't going to work out. And, yeah, and yeah. so I, I texted a, a friend of mine that I knew he had this, you know, really elaborate CCIE level home lab. And I just asked him, like, hey, I know you did ICE in the home lab. Like, how do you pull it off? Like, can you skimp out on some of the hardware requirements? And I was fully expecting him to text back saying, like, oh, yeah, man, just, like, buy a new desktop. Like, what are you doing? But instead, he texted me back saying, oh, no, don't, don't buy any hardware. Just run EVNG on the cloud. It's, like, 50 cents an hour. Just power it up when you're labbing and knock your socks off. And so um, prior to getting that text from him, you know, I, I didn't really have any experience doing, you know, real like hyperscaler cloud type things. I'd set up some VPNs in the AWS. I've done some like direct connect cross connects before, but uh, ne never actually like firing up a VM in the cloud or, or anything at all like that. So it, it took me some trial and error, but eventually thanks to uh, mostly the EVNG community edition cookbook, uh, I got it all working at Cisco Ace to start up in the cloud and been playing with it ever since. Okay. So EVNG, now I've, I've spent some time with EVNG. I kind of moved to that from GNS3 after a lot of years of using GNS3 back when GNS3 was pretty much the only game in town. EVNG just, just kind of surpassed it feature-wise uh, over time and it was an easier platform for me to use. But why, I mean, you're dealing with Cisco stuff and Cisco I, so why not, why not CML? Cisco, what is it? Cisco Modeling Labs? Why not that platform? Yeah, so I can't remember exactly why I didn't pick CML back in that summer of 2020, but I, I want to say it was right around that time that they changed it where it used to be, I think it was Cisco Viral, and yeah. they rebranded it as CML. Mm -hmm. and, and that's all great. I've heard a lot of good things about it. But at the time, there wasn't really a whole lot of resources about you know setting it up and especially getting Cisco Ice going inside of it. Whereas with EVNG, they, they had a website that has, and they still do, that gives you step-by-step -step instructions of how to get Cisco Ice mm. started up in that environment. So that made it the clear winner for me. 
at the time. And as I started playing with it more and more, uh, I ended up adding an Aruba OSCX uh, virtual switch into the EVE topology, you know, started playing around with the multi-vendor side of things and uh, the EVE documentation about setting that up was quite helpful. So uh, eventually this led into me uh, largely out of pandemic boredom <laughs> towards the tail end of 2020, uh, doing a couple blog posts about home webbing, and uh, I had purchased the professional version of EVNG, but I decided to keep everything in the community edition in the cloud, mostly because, you know, if, let's say you're a student with absolutely no budget money and you're trying to get every single penny out of the 300 bucks that Google Cloud gives you as a new customer. I just thought it'd be more fun to work within the constraints of the free offering. Mm-hmm. And um, even though CML does cost money, so so there is that. Uh, I've heard really good things about it. The way you have all the different Cisco images, you know, right there for you. That, that's quite nice. But uh, I'm quite cheap when it comes to uh, my home tech, and it yeah. just felt like uh, it, as I started doing more multi-vendor stuff with it, uh, ended up sticking with the Avenger. Yeah, yeah, that, that that all makes sense. I I have a CML subscription. I, it's still current. I think I'm probably up for renewal in January or February. Usually that stuff rolls over at the top of the year, and I'll have to check and see if I want to keep that CML subscription alive. Um, I haven't needed to fire up ICE or haven't wanted to fire up ICE, so I couldn't tell you if CML offers an ICE image, if it's easy to get stood up in there or not. Um, but it is because it is like you say, the router switch, firewall stuff. That's that's boom. That's super easy you know, drag, drop, add some parameters and, you know, off you go. And, uh, and that's, that's easy. But I, I have a different question though. Okay. Cause you've ended up with you know, in the cloud and your friend said 50 cents an hour. And I was like, really, come on. That's it's surely it's going to cost more than that. And then you were talking about your $300, uh, new customer credit and all that stuff. I, did, I mean, 50 cents an hour, is that anything close to reality? I mean, even if you were super good about shutting things down and standing them back up only when you needed them, could you keep the cost that low? Well, I guess it wouldn't be an episode of heavy networking without the guest answering. It depends uh, at least once, right? <laughs> right? But, you know, with this one, I, I truly feel it depends. So the lion's share of all my GCP costs is running. There's a 16 core, about 64-ish gig of RAM uh, virtual machine type that I like to run, which is about 54 cents an hour. You mm-hmm. could definitely skimp on the CPU count, get something with less RAM and make that a bit lower. But um, even though that's most of your cost, uh, that's definitely not all of it. So of course you're going to have some network uh, ingress, egress charges, public IP fees, uh, depending on how you set up the VPN. If you're using GCP's VPN tunnel offering, uh, there's some costs associated with that. But I've never really had the, the networking side of GCP go over like a single digit dollar amount uh, per month, even when I'm using the VPN a ton and things like that. But okay, I think so, the biggest gotcha mm-hmm. is the storage because that persistent storage where yeah. it's something like, I think, uh, maybe about a nickel or so uh, per gig per month. But th- that can really add up on you, if, especially if you have, you know, a big Cisco ICE install and EVNG that's eating up, you know, tons of gigs of disk space. Uh, if you're not careful about keeping that clean, it, it can add up. I think the biggest monthly storage bill I've ever had in GCP was about $15 a month, mostly because I got lazy. You know, there were some snapshots and backups and things that uh, I didn't really need to have yeah. there that I did. But uh, typically I'm within a single digit number of dollars per month for storage. But uh, again, very important to keep that storage side of things tidy. But with the cloud home webbing, uh, that cost will sneak up on you. And if you're doing any type of home webbing that's like, you know, really disk storage intensive, uh, probably better off doing those like on a VM on a home desktop or, mm-hmm. you know, even, even like a Raspberry Pi with 128 gig, um, you know, micro SD card, like ha- having that cheap, you know, buy it one storage definitely uh, it beats the cloud cost uh, any day of the week. So with storage costs plus your compute costs, it sounds like your total would be in the 20, $25 a month range would be like your total all in bill for, for GCP. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty fair. And again, that will vary widely depending on how many hours you actually have that virtual machine running EVNG going mm-hmm. and the CPU count and RAM amount of RAM allocated to the VM. Yeah, that's that's a very reasonable cost, but it does it does make me think about I gosh, I wonder what I'm paying to run with that 16 core 128 gig 
Uh, it's a, it's an HP Z820 workstation sitting down in my basement. How much electricity is being chewed up by having that thing running? Um, is it 20 bucks a month? Is it 30 bucks a month? I, I don't really know. I don't have an easy way to measure that. I could buy some kind of a power meter, I suppose, and plug it in and uh, maybe track that more closely. How many, how much current's being drawn, how much, how many watts I'm chewing through in the course of a month. It's, it's got to be comparable, right? So I could be, um, or I could even be spending more just to keep that thing running if I'm running it 24-7. I, it's hardware, right? I don't want to spin up and spin down the physical server all the time. That's hard on everything, you know, in that machine. And so I tend to just like power it up and just let it go, leave it running. Um, although I will say the uh, the physical switches and routers I have, I have those on on smart plugs and I got them in my Apple HomeKit. I can just press a button and fire up whatever switch it is that I need uh, for a particular exercise. And then I shut those back down because those things just sit there and generate heat. And you know, I'm not leaving those on 24 by seven, but the server itself with uh, ESXi that I run all my VMs on, I do. All right. All right. Uh, anyway, enough about me. Back to the cloud, Tom. Um, why GCP particularly? You started there and you and not AWS or Azure. Yeah, th that's a great question because I was always under the impression that if I was doing cloud things, I started off in AWS. just seems like that's what everyone's doing. But the EvenG community has this really good documentation about getting the nested virtualization end of things to work in GCP. So the way that you have the VM that's running EvenG, and then you have you know VMs inside of EvenG running your routers, switches, servers, you know whatever you want. Uh, it's pretty easy to do that with their instructions. I know there's ways to do that on other clouds. And the, the other big thing that kind of led me to GCP is, uh, again, that $300 that they give pretty much anyone with a Gmail account and credit card for free right off the bat. It's just really nice to get your feet wet with that. And again, there, there's plenty of other cool things you can do instead of, you know, your AWSs, Azures, Linodes, et cetera, instead of GCP. Uh, by all means, try this stuff at home on the on the various cloud uh, compute platform of your choosing. I did not know about the $300 credit. I mean, you've mentioned it here a couple of times, but before this show, I didn't know that $300 credit for anybody with a Gmail account was a thing. That's, that's pretty interesting. We interrupt this podcast for a brief word from Packet Pusher sponsor, InterOptic. InterOptic has been the trusted optical transceiver supplier for many federal, state, and local government networks and Fortune 500 companies. They provide friendly, U.S.-based, OEM-agnostic networking expertise to help you choose the best optics and fiber to future-proof your networks at the lowest cost. Why continue to pay OEM prices for optics? Talk to the experts who will deliver brand-equivalent transceivers at a fraction of the cost. InterOptic can help you and your team create a more nimble physical layer. Their optical transceivers are guaranteed 100% compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and other switches. InterOptic physically tests every single transceiver before it's shipped, and their transceivers are built to the exact same quality standards as the OEMs and typically come from the same manufacturing lines. That means you can purchase the same, if not better performing, optical transceivers tested and designed by engineers who truly understand the specifications critical to your network at a fraction of OEM costs. It's time to take control of your optics purchases with InterOptic. Find out how at interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. That's interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. And now back to the conversation. It's also fascinating to me that the uh, the documentation was just the, the the game changer, the thing that just made it easy. It's the easy button. When you can find good documentation, someone that's got a great step-by-step, -step, it's just like, okay, I'll do that. As opposed to something else that might also work. But if you got to spend a bunch of time to figure it out, as opposed to being able to someone else saving you time because they figured it out and documented it well, that could be a game changer. And uh, all you vendors out there that are listening, if you don't make your documentation public, you're missing a trick here because we engineers love this stuff. Show us your documentation so that we can see in our minds before we even buy your product, what it is that we can do with the thing and how we'd get it done. Because if we can visualize it, that that removes a sticking point in the buying process. But but I, uh, I, I, I digress again, uh, Tom, you were going to say about the $300? Oh, yeah. I was just going to say that um, it, I think it's still working the same way nowadays. Obviously, it's been a, a long time since I first burned my $300 myself. <laughs> but um, you, you can sure make that go a long way with home webbing, too. It's also very easy to get lazy about it where, oh, you know, it's just, you know, 
300 hours right off the bat, I'll just leave this VM running for 24 seven. And it's just so easy to get in that trap of, you know, when it's uh, not going to your personal credit card, it's uh, a little bit easier to be lax about some of those expenses. (laughs) Okay. You've been very good about being careful about that, not running up your cloud bill. And I know a big part of the way you did that was automation. So walk us through your automation solutions, but give us kind of the big picture first and then, uh, and then let's dive into the details. Sure. So uh, when I first started doing the whole Cloud Home Web thing, uh, automation was really not in the cards. It just wasn't something that I thought I'd be doing. But after getting ICE to play well with, with all the switches that I had built virtually inside the EMG topology in the cloud, I started really wanting to get that Cisco ICE instance uh, again in EVNG and Google Cloud to start talking with stuff, you know, at my physical home location. So having a physical switch that could, you know, talk radius map and all that good stuff with Cisco ICE in the cloud. And the best way to do that would, would of course, be some flavor of tunnel. So I, I picked the Google Cloud Platform's VPN feature set to do that at, at first. And it was super cool, but they, they charge you, I think it's about five cents an hour for that VPN tunnel. And so if you accidentally leave that VPN tunnel up, or if, you know, even worse, you leave that uh, even GVM running, you know, you're, you're very quickly lighting about $12 per day on fire, um, potentially more or less, depending on how you have it set up. So, uh, of course, that happened to me where after the trial was up, and I think it, it wasn't much, I don't think it could have been more than like maybe 25 or 50 bucks that I lost just to pure laziness of leaving things running that I didn't need to leave running. But uh, that really got me motivated to figure out how to automate away the, the startup and shutdown of that whole even GVM and creating, destroying the VPN gateway. And I know just about any network engineer that's been doing this a while has some type of billing horror story about, you know, a circuit auto-renewed that shouldn't or co-location data center contract that, uh, you know, went sideways, things like that. Uh, It's almost like a rite of passage. I think there's even some good memes out there nowadays with, uh, you know, surprise AWS bills and all of that. But, um, you know, when it hits your personal credit card, you know, it gets personal, right? Mm, (laughs) And so uh, as much as I'm embarrassed to say this, if I didn't have that, you know, tiny bit of, you know, let's call it some beer money that I lost to the the GCP invoice. Uh, I don't think I would have gone down the path of getting into the network automation and, and having things start and start up automatically uh, that I ended up doing, at least that would have uh, probably delayed me quite a bit. And, and there's ways to do all of this, um, you know, keeping your costs in line. I, I know uh, just about every cloud platform has some type of budgeting and alerting tool to uh, prevent overspend, but it's kind of a double-edged sword though, because the last thing on earth you want to do is like, you know, be in the middle of a really good home web, you know, solving problems, getting stuff done. And then the VM just dies because you hit a budget <laughs> threshold or something, you know, that, that just wouldn't be cool. So uh, I, yeah. I chose the network automate the, I shouldn't say network, the general automation path to, to work around that. And, and it's been going pretty good, but I, I was way out of my comfort zone at first, you know, doing things like uh, having Ansible playbooks that interact with the GCP API and, you know, trying to get some Python scripts to, to clean uh, things up. It, so it, it you, got a little hairy. You're saying out of your comfort zone, as in you didn't have background with coding or scripting particularly? Oh, not at all. I actively avoided that for far too many years throughout my career. And I think a lot of that had to do with, you know, I started off, you know, your more traditional, traditional um, CCNA type education and, you know, going into CCNP, it never really... Uh, dawned on me just how big this whole, you know, DevNet automation track has been getting. <laughs> and I think this was a kind of a rude awakening of, oh, wow, there, there's this, you know, whole world of doing things uh, programmatically and doing things uh, with some of these tools, especially the, the uh, Ansible playbooks. Well, this is also interesting that your workplace didn't force you into automation either. It doesn't sound like you, uh, you ended up discovering it on your own as opposed to being dropped into a, a whatever your working environment was that uh, needed you to do automation because reasons you didn't have that motivation either 
So there was definitely that going on, but the problem was, and this is largely on me. So I had this very, very talented former coworker where he built out all these really great Ansible playbooks. And I was kind of more of the end user of that, where uh. I would just like, you know, edit the YAML file or something. And, you know, I didn't really know enough to like write a playbook myself. I, I would just, you know, edit the things, you know, run the Ansible playbook command and you know, just go off to the races from there. But th there was just always something else going on, whether it was like, you know, a data center migration or like I was studying for CCMP. Like, <laughs> yeah. I got to be honest, I found excuses to not think programmatically and go down that ah. path. I, I just had a bad experience coding way, 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 way long ago. And I feel like that uh, probably <laughs> put me on a path where I was just... Uh, very much, you know, uncomfortable trying to learn how to code for, for the longest time. But uh, I got some resources that got me out of that drift. And I'm glad I did because I'm having a lot of fun with it now. Well, okay. So automation allows you to fail at scale. I mean, that's a that's a thing that I've, <laughs> I've said over the years. And one of my early experiences goes back to a tool called Voyance. Voyance has been bought and sold several times. I don't know what it's called anymore or where it lives. I think the code base still exists somewhere. But we were running Voyance, kicked off a job that was supposed to standardize some of our description script, uh, description fields for interfaces. We had a standard template we were using and you, we built the backend script, then Voyance was going to do all the magic and deploy it. And long story short, it was a disaster. Whatever happened, a lot of it worked, but a lot of devices just had these mangled description interfaces and it was all said and done because of whatever it was that we missed in the script, or maybe there was a bug in Voyance. Voyance certainly had plenty of bugs at that time. And so uh, it just felt like, as they say, the the you know the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. It was like this is a lot of work to come up with this result. So eh, and it's just easier to keep doing things by hand, if, especially when there's a high pressure situation on doing a data center migration, like you talked about. I've been through a bunch of those. Um, you know, swapping out core switches or something like that with tons of interfaces involved, and you got to uh, make sure everything's just right. It sucks and it's tedious, but you can go with a spreadsheet and kind of know through your own manual, even though it's manual, through your own manual process, it's going to be right when I'm done. It's going to be good. I have my own system. I don't know. I'm not going to spend the time to learn some network automation thing that I don't necessarily trust and be left with some unexpected result. I'm just going to go with what I know. And so you say excuses. I say all that to say that you said excuses, but I don't. I don't know that that's fair. I think you're being too hard on yourself, maybe, because there's a practical side to it, too, where sometimes it's like, I just don't want to right now. But eventually, Tom, eventually you did, it sounds like, get stuck into the automation really deeply. Uh, so let's look at it in more detail. You've mentioned Ansible. I think you said Python somewhere along the way. Um, so walk us through what's happening here. And I'm assuming you're interact uh, interacting with the GCP API quite a bit, which... Um, um, Google APIs are always an adventure uh, for me whenever <laughs> I get in there and start granting permissions and figuring out what scope I need and so on for different projects. So uh, so walk us through what Ansible's doing, what you're doing with Python, and how, how you survived the GCP API. Absolutely. So uh, I, I have it all tied together with, with this ugly bash script, but what I'm doing is, is I'm starting and stopping my GCP home web uh, using this script to, to do everything in a way where, you know, I just launch the script, it sets up the, gets everything going with the GCP side of the VPN tunnel, starts up the EVNG VM, and then when I'm ready to, you know, close things down, it'll just shut all that down for me. So there's no way that I can accidentally uh, leave it running and are get you, the bill going higher. You said Bash script. Are you doing all that in Bash? So it's kind of a, I guess, for lack of a better term, it's more of a wrapper that, um, so it starts off where it'll run a Python script to grab my home's public IP. And this is, again, I think if I was redoing this today, I would do this a little bit cleaner. When I first wrote all of this, I was still very new to the whole automation game, but uh, I need to grab the public IP first for two reasons. And that's because with GCP, it expects you to have uh, your VPN tunnel endpoint be a static IP. So we need to know what that is. And um, typically I have my VPN tunnel terminated on an OpenSense firewall VM that's running on my home mm -hmm. desktop. So that's sitting behind my home router's NAT. So it doesn't have any idea what the public IP actually is. So 
Python solves that problem. So uh, using the, I think it's the ipfi.org API to figure out, you know, definitively this is my public IP that I get dynamically from my home ISP because I'm too cheap to buy a static IP address. <laughs> and so that's where the script starts off. It's a bash script that kicks off that Python to figure out the public IP. And then once we have that public IP, now I can run an Ansible playbook to grab the OpenSense XML config file. And uh, I got another Python script that, uh, again, all this tied together through that bash script that will take the OpenSense XML config file, uh, open up the config, figure out, okay, this is the public IP that's in there. Do I need to change it? If so, run another Ansible playbook to uh, make it so. If not, it's able to skip ahead into the real fun where we have Ansible talking with uh, the GCP API to set up the VPN tunnel, uh, all the gateway, everything on the cloud side uh, so that we can get that tunnel up. And then another Ansible playbook fires off that will power up that it powers up the even GVM. And after all that happens, I have this, you know, really dirty uh, bash script thing where it just starts pinging the IP address of that even GVM. And as soon as it starts pinging, it sends a message to the screen that, you know, hey, the, the home lab's up, go ahead and do your thing. And then uh, once it's time to uh, shut down the whole web party for the day, uh, I'll just press a key. Uh, the script fires off an Ansible playbook that will actually, uh, this time talking directly with the EVNG server. So just plain old, you know, SSH, shut it down gracefully, and then uh, wait about 90 seconds or so and fire off yet another Ansible playbook, uh, this time using the GCP API to make sure that that VM did indeed get powered off. If it's not powered off, it'll make it so. And lastly, we have a Ansible play Ansible playbook that will destroy the G GCP VPN uh, side of the tunnel. That way we don't pay the five cents an hour any longer than we have to. And um, pretty much every time I interact with the GCP API, uh, actually not pretty much, every time I do that, I'm using an Ansible playbook. So I've totally uh, extracted away all the pain of doing the, the API side of things. And again, it's all tied together with this ugly bash script. There's definitely better ways to pull this off, but <laughs> I tried to use Ansible when it made sense to you know, extract away some of the, the things that can be painful with that GCP API. And then I use Python when it made sense to you know, manipulate a text uh, XML file for the firewall configs and things like that. You keep using the words ugly and like apologizing for the way you handled this situation, <laughs> that situation. And I think you're uh, I think you're overthinking it, Tom, because let's compare my solution to your solution. You have a solution. <laughs> I don't have one at all. That is fair. Yeah. So whatever you have like... that's ugly or feels hacky to you. I mean, it's it's working. I haven't got anything that does anything like that whatsoever. So uh, so you're way ahead of the way ahead of me as far as that goes. Um, yeah, that's so fair. one, one question along the way, as you were describing, um, you know, the, the bash script is your wrapper. That's kind of your procedural script that drives these Python and Ansible, uh, executions along the way, you get the tunnel to come up and then you kick off the EVNG, uh, VM and get that stood up. Now that you've got your VPN tunnel and you can make that call, uh, does do you talk to EVNG to bring up a particular lab or is it just once you go in, now you've got this basically naked EVNG environment and you can you can begin to fire up a specific lab that you're looking for? Yeah, so the way that I've been using my EVNG instance is I don't really have like separate labs saved. I just have one main topology. And this is largely because of the way that I'm using Cisco Ice where this is just, you know, I log into EVNG, uh, the topology is right there. I don't really do any type of, you know, separate lab files. I just have uh, everything, okay. you know, right there. It's not, again, not the prettiest, but I've just found that easier where, especially the way that I have, I, I forget the exact EVNG term, but you can make these, um, it's like a cloud interface where it kind of bridges together one of the EVNG um virtual NICs into the real world, like a, a NIC mm -hmm. that's going into the actual virtual private yep. cloud. And so since I don't really want to mess around with those more than I have to, I just kind of leave that as is. As soon as I get the Cisco ICE VM plugged into the proper cloud interface that's able to talk over the VPN to my home, I kind of treat it more of like a set it and forget it thing, for lack of a better term. 
Yeah, no, and and your use case is different than mine. You're very focused on you know on on ice and a, a predictable topology, whereas in my case, it depends on what I'm doing. It might be like, oh, I need to figure out something in OSPF today, so I need an OSPF lab, or I need whatever it is. I could be building you know different things depending on what I'm doing. I have more of an educational focus, and I could be showing anything um, mm-hmm. really. And so my problem is when Eve is up, then I need one of maybe a half dozen different topologies that I might want to to stand up, or maybe something unique. If I've figured out I need a particular topology to illustrate a point, something I'm trying to teach, something like that. So yeah, okay. So we have um, different problems there as such. Although, as I understand it, EVNG has a pretty rich API. Uh, and last week's show, I was talking with uh, Christian Schultz, and he mentioned that the EVNG API is quite robust. There's an awful lot of things you can do with that. So you didn't start out experienced with automation. You did figure it out as you went along. You said you were more of an Ansible user, a consumer of playbooks. So how how was that experience of uh, learning it as you went? Was it all that bad? Yeah, well, it sure was an experience. I think um, being able to run the Ansible playbooks in the various levels of verbosity, uh, some of the, even when the playbooks were just failing miserably, you know, doing the dash VVVV to see every single piece of information that it was getting back from Google Cloud or whatever I'm trying to interact with, uh, that, that was super helpful. Uh, obviously, Stack Overflow and uh, trying to Google my way out of that <laughs> right. uh, helped a ton. And I think uh, also another uh, heavy networking guest, uh, John Campobianco, uh, ended up getting yeah. his Ansible book. And uh, that was super helpful too. I think uh, the way that I think I usually learn best is if I can see like a working example of something, kind of like a known good solution of, you know, hey, here's this YAML file, here's this playbook, here's the Ansible playbook syntax to actually make it so. And that book is filled with a lot of those things. I think having that kind of working environment to look at was incredibly helpful, especially being able to, you know, pull down some of the stuff that he has on his GitLab of these known good playbooks. Uh, That that definitely helped me a ton. I'm a big fan of uh, seeing it in action. Then I can kind of put the piece together. It it makes it easier for me than speaking abstractly about it. I liked the abstract parts, like like if I was studying for a cert uh, in a formal boot camp or something, and there'd be there'd be a lecture portion where the instructor would explain things. I liked that. It gave me the background. But what I really want to do is see that hands-on. What's actually working? How do I make this work? And that really puts all the pieces together for me. So. Um, yeah, John Capobianco, he's been a guest on Heavy Networking a few times. I haven't had him on for a while. Um, I've lost track of John a little bit. I know he went to work at Cisco because of all the work he did, the book and his blog and and so on. He's actually working at Cisco now, I think as a uh, developer in developer relations, something like that. But he's still, he's still fighting the good fight with automation. Uh, I know that much. Um, uh, so back to back to the cloud again. Would would you say everyone go the GCP route, even if they aren't ready for automation? Maybe I should just say the cloud route, even if they aren't ready for automation. Um, or if I'm not wanting to get into automation right now, should I just do the home lab in the basement, eBay server kind of thing? Well, I certainly don't want to discourage anyone from diving headfirst into cloud home labbing. Even if you're not doing the automation thing at all, there's a lot of really good stuff to learn there. But I think it makes the most sense, especially if you're kind of getting started with familiarity with Linux or, you know, like CCNA level networking knowledge to do that type of thing, either whether it's on like a Linux VM on your own home workstation or maybe even using a more simple network simulator like Cisco Packet Tracer or something to kind of get that fundamental knowledge down first. I think it would be incredibly frustrating to, you know, just go head first and the EVNG in the cloud and, you know, having to troubleshoot some of these things with the virtual private cloud and doing all of these things that are rather hard to do if you haven't, you know, played around with TCP dump and packet captures and things and physical gear. Uh, I think that would be the better way to do it, in my opinion. If I was starting all over from scratch uh, with this whole GCP thing, I think I would probably not do the GCP VPN tunnel solution and maybe pick something like Zero Tier or one of mm-hmm. those other fancier SD-WAN type solutions to get the traffic going from my home into the EVNG, EVNG instance. Uh, there's some, some really some kind great of an YouTube overlay that, solution yeah. that's gonna gonna stitch your two remote environments together. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. I think that would most likely be a tiny bit cheaper than 
doing the GCP VPN thing uh, would certainly get you going faster. But I think maybe it's just because I've spent so many years doing IPsec tunnels over the years where I just thought it'd be really cool to, you know, see that come to life and get familiar with it. And if you're uh, you're a business, it makes tons of sense to do the GCP VPN tunnel and IPsec and all that. But we're talking about HomeWeb here. So zero tier and the like uh, might be a bit simpler and make things a bit easier if you're trying to do this at home. Along the way, you mentioned Linux. Like, if you're not familiar with Linux, that could hold you back a bit and, you know, make it a bit more of a struggle to get all of this going. Um, and that's a great point to raise. I have been using Linux for so long, I take it for granted. Um, but that's if people that are familiar with Windows primarily, trying to move over into the Linux environment could be uh, a struggle for them. It's just it's just a different world, the way things are done and the way you interact and the way you start and stop services and the way you change directories and move things around and file permissions. And it's not rocket science and there's tons of documentation out there about it. But if it's if you're brand new to it, it's going to slow you down until you're used to it. Um, was that uh, Linux? Was that a, something you were familiar with going into it or was that new to you? Yes. So I was very lucky that, oh my gosh, not to date myself, but uh, when I was in high school, the original Backtrack Linux came out. And, you know, that was back when, I mean, this was mid 2000s and, you know, all the wireless was WEP encryption everywhere. And that was like just some of the crazy things you could do and backtrack back then. Uh, I was just fascinated by it. I was just doing, you know, computer repair type work. And I was just blown away at what you could do with backtrack Linux back then. And so that really got me uh, familiarized with it uh, pretty early on in my career. So I've just kind of naturally uh, over the years, and I think I've typically gravitated more towards uh, more of the Red Hat flavor distributions recently, but I've always had some level of familiarity uh, with Linux, largely just because of those, you know, old old days of messing around with all the wireless stuff back when that was all brand new. But um, yeah, I think having it, at minimum, being able to be comfortable with things like TCP dump and, you know, just basic network troubleshooting on the Linux yeah. side uh, is almost a prereq for EVNG because if you're struggling through that, you're just going to be having a very bad time trying to get EVNG to yeah. uh, inter- interact with other things uh, over that GCP VPN tunnel and, and any other type of VMs or resources that, uh, that you'd be messing around with in the cloud. Uh, are you a Mac user? No, so I'm actually pretty big on the Windows subsystem for Linux nowadays. Okay, which I hear is pretty pretty solid. Uh, WSL is a, it, it's a thing now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm pretty happy with WSL. Um, it does what I need to do. I'm pretty addicted to Tmux. Uh, I had a former coworker that introduced that to me, and now that's how I, I do most things when I'm in, on an SSH terminal. But the one thing that's uh, a little bit annoying for me with WSL2 is that today it doesn't support IPv6. And I'm in an environment where we are impacted by that uh, OMB mandate that uh, says we need yeah. to do 20% by the end of the fiscal year. And uh, that's been frustrating because I really like WSL2 and I really like being able to, you know, have my TMUX sessions open and do a bunch of different things at once. But I can't do that on my IPv6 only nets. And I hope that gets fixed soon. But uh, other than that, uh, I'm a very big WSL fan. That OMB mandate, you're talking about the uh, Office of Management Budget, federal government in the U.S., where um, uh, IPv6 adoption is effectively mandated by that document that came out. That's what just for people that are not U.S.-based, maybe hadn't heard about that. Yep, that's correct. Okay. Well, Tom, this has been this has been great, man. We've covered a lot of ground here. So, what are your favorite resources to recommend for people that are getting started? Because everybody seems to have been on a, a somewhat different journey. What was yours as far as those resources that helped you get up to speed on all of this? Yeah, so I, I think the biggest thing is we're all at different levels of our, our home webbing and network operations or net DevOps journeys, right? And so, depending on where you're at. I feel like it's always better to start off, you know, kind of like, you know, riding a tricycle or something where, you know, maybe Cisco Packet Tracer and the like uh, starting off and then kind of work your way up to maybe a general purpose Huffy bike, you know, your EVNGs or GNS3s or CMLs, things like that. 
And I think once you've really gotten the hang of that, you know, doing like, you know, the, the Tour de France style bikes where you got your container labs and uh, Ivan's net lab tool and, and things like that, where you don't have a, you don't have a GUI anymore. You're just doing things infrastructure as code and, and all of that's great, but we all got to start somewhere. And so I think just uh, being honest with yourself about, you know, EVNG might not be the best starting point for many people. Maybe it's packet tracer. Uh, maybe you're really good with this and you can just go straight to container lab, but but uh, anyhow, I, I think the biggest resources that um, I've benefited from have been the EVNG community cookbook um, that saved me many times <laughs> trying to get the, the various VMs that I have going in EVNG. And um, uh, Ethan, actually your blog where you, you have that post about uh, getting some of those free to download network operating systems uh, without a vendor relationship or yeah. like a Spartanet yeah. account or anything. Uh, I think that's pretty huge. You know, in the past, I was a student where, you know, I didn't have a CCO account or a relationship with any of the vendors. So you couldn't download some of these things. But the way that uh, some of those network operating systems uh, can be free to download through, you know, legitimate, you know, direct from the vendor means nowadays. Uh, that, that's really good stuff. Uh, again, especially if you're just getting started in this field. Uh, YouTube is definitely your friend. It's amazing yeah, it? if it's you just, just type yeah. in these simulator names, how many videos come up. And uh, lastly, I've actually been a uh, surprised at how good some of the resources on discord in particular have been nowadays um, there's a handful of them uh, a couple that come to mind are like uh, disnog.org uh, router gods and the art of engineering discord has this really good home lab channel and i think it's really great to you know kind of learn with others you know don't Put yourself in isolation being able to ask questions and chat with other home webbers where uh, i remember there was one time i was having this really weird issue with uh vqfx and evng i just couldn't figure it out and i posted something i can't remember what discord it was but like within an hour someone said oh just do these three things and sure enough those three things worked and uh, i <laughs> couldn't find those three things googling for it for it and it was just quite nice to have that community vibe uh, so I would definitely recommend doing that if you're getting started. That's funny you mentioned Discords. If if Slack was the new IRC, I think Discord is the new Slack. It just feels like more and more people <laughs> have headed over. If Slack had ever figured out how to unify around identity, so you didn't have to log into you know 58 Slacks and feel like you were a different person on all of them, that might have solved that problem, made them more competitive there. But Slack went after a different market. Discord's where it's at for so many of these discussions. I've just found that there's a lot of activity out there and. Uh, in discord land not that i'm active in any of them because i just don't have the attention span <laughs> uh it's all about slack for me still these days um that's where it's at but yeah i completely agree with you finding community than just people you can bounce questions off of is uh, is is absolutely great so you said uh disnog.org and router gods and art of network engineering those are all discords that you can go into any other uh, resources you want to mention tom yeah, so um, there's definitely many, many blogs out there. Um, Reddit has, I think it's our home web and a couple others that, that have some good stuff. Uh, if you're specifically looking to do Cisco ICE in the home web, uh, Catherine McNamara's blog, I think it's network-node.com, uh, that actually was a huge influence for me, uh, largely because of some of the really cool stuff she was doing with Cisco ICE at home. Uh, I started doing some of my home webbing blog uh, kind of based on those ideas. And uh, I mean, she's gone on. I think she wrote the official uh, ICE cert certification yeah. guide from Cisco Press. And yeah. she's truly the ICE queen. Like half the Cisco um, live videos on ICE are her. Uh, definitely a, a very good set of resources if oh, you're looking yeah. to do ICE at home. Yeah, Catherine McNamara's blog. I mean, she's a content beast. She's just you know incredible. The amount and the detail and the thoroughness with which she posts stuff. And not just about ICE, about all kinds of uh, security-related stuff, particularly. Mm -hmm. She's just, she's great. So another great resource. All right. Now, you mentioned uh, just a little bit ago about Container Lab and uh, Yvonne Peplinyak's NetLab tool and so on, where you're treating things more as straight-up infrastructure as code to bring your home lab into existence and not using a GUI. Is that the future? Do you think you just use EVNG long-term, or, or, or do you think you maybe maybe you and all of us end up uh, doing a container lab or net lab kind of a thing someday. 
Yeah, so I really think that kind of the the holy grail of, of home labbing and especially cloud home labbing is going to be some flavor of, you know, container lab or, or net lab or all the different tools to tie all this together with, with you know, tools. Uh, I think, you know, uh, Yvonne's tool uses um, Vagrant and a couple other things. Uh, but I got to be honest, uh, I'm not quite there today in my net devopsy type journey. I, I think I will be there someday. But um, a lot of the things that I've been doing in my home lab have been uh, on VM-based images, you know, particularly Cisco ICE and Aruba OSCX. And I haven't really heard of anyone that's done that in Container Lab just yet. I know there's ways to do it where you like wrap a, a container that has the VM inside of it. But uh, mm, I just yeah. haven't really had the cycles or a big motivator to try it's, it today. But it's not as easy as someone handing you a container out of a repo and firing it up, because if it was that easy, then you'd, you'd do it. But when you've got to go through a bunch of headaches to wrap the VM in a container and then, you know, it's a thing, then eh, why? Yeah. Yeah, but I, I do think that, um, I mean, Ivan's uh, um, GitLab or, or GitHub, where I think he specifically calls out, you know, instead of wasting time in the GUI building topologies, you can, and doing the boring work, you can just skip straight to what you really want to do in the lab using infrastructure as code with some of those pre built topologies. I, I think that's where it's at. I, I definitely want to be doing that someday. And uh, being in the research and education community, um, the, the Perf Sonar project, uh, kind of those servers that um, run all these different uh, network latency tools and throughput tests and things like that. Uh, they got a new version of that coming out and, and it runs really well in containers. So I'm thinking uh, mm. this has been on, uh, as soon as that's more um, finalized, what I really want to do is start kicking the tires with uh, probably Container Lab. Uh, maybe I'll use some of the NetLab tools as well but to get some of those perfs on our containers you know talking with uh, let's say juniper crpd containers or something and uh, seeing what i can build there again doing some of those infrastructure as code concepts not having to click and drag a whole bunch of um, really really tedious network connections together in a gui or anything like that <laughs> it's so uh, tedious, that'd be pretty yes. fun i've spent way too much time doing that <laughs> uh the same i thank you for reminding me about perf sonar by the way um i i fired up iperf in my lab recently and it's just just to run some simple throughput tests and so on but it's kind of limited what it does it does things and but it's just it's got a finite set of capabilities. And if I remember right, it's been a while since I looked at Perf Sonar, but I think it can do a lot more with it uh, as compared to iPerf. If I remember right, I've been meaning to dig back into that. So uh, again, thanks for that reminder. It's probably going to be a useful tool for me. Uh, Dom, great discussion. And now I'm I'm inspired and intimidated all at the same time. It's like, oh, I should do it. I should get something fired up in the lab and uh, work through the automations. All that stuff's right in my wheelhouse. It's just finding the time and the focus to sit down and and get it done. But uh, anyway, maybe I'll write about it on uh, on my blog, ethancbanks.com, uh, or at packetbushers.net if I do get something going on there. Tom, how do people follow you on the internet? Well, I've never had like a cool online handle or nickname I've liked. So I ended up just going with my ham radio license, which is KD9CPB. Uh, so you find me, that that's uh, my handle on Twitter. Uh, my blog's KD9CPB.com. Uh, it's really terrible for privacy to use your ham radio license like that, but uh, it makes me easy to find. Uh, to my knowledge, I'm the only KD9CPB out there. And I don't really post as much as I used to. Uh, my wife and I, we're, we're proud toddler parents. And a lot of the home web cycles I had are uh, no longer being spent on doing home web things. Some of those posts are slowly falling into a state of obsolescence. But uh, the good news is I, I did write a whole bunch um, kind of in those dark days of the pandemic when everything was closed about some of the things that uh, helped me uh, go from more traditional network engineer, you know, really, really focused on ops and doing the data center type stuff and trying to pick up Python, Ansible and all the other fun net devopsy type things. So uh, I think that content is withstanding, withstanding the test of time uh, far better. So if you or someone you know uh, would be interested in that, definitely uh, check it out. A whole bunch of uh, other network engineering and ham radio ramblings over there. Yeah, it's scary how stuff does fall into uh, uh, an obsolete state more quickly than we'd like. Like you reminded me about those posts that I did about how to find uh, images so that you can run them in your lab and not have to go through the sales process because they're they're out there, but you got to know where to look kind of thing. 
And uh, are those still current? I have no idea, Tom. It's been a while since I looked <laughs> at those. They might be getting obsolete at this point. But uh, okay, KD9CPB.com. You can find Tom there. And uh, of course, you can find me on Twitter at EC Banks and follow the Packet Pushers podcast network at Packet Pushers. Uh, we have a lot of podcasts. If you didn't know that, if you're only listening to heavy networking, you can find all of those at packetpushers.net slash subscribe. The whole lineup is there or just whatever podcast tool you use to listen, punch in packet pushers and you should see, Ooh, nine different feeds come up where we're covering things like uh, cloud on the day Two cloud show with me and Ned Belavance and Kubernetes with Kubernetes unpacked. That's uh, Michael Levon. And of course the news every week on the network break show and, uh, and more. We have several other shows in the network there. So um, dig around, see what you can find. It's all content that we're creating for your professional career development. And if we're on, we're on Twitter at Packet Pushers, if you're there, we're also on LinkedIn. Uh, and if you're a Spotify user, we're on Spotify now. If you didn't know that and like to use Spotify for all the things, you can find all our shows there. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.